There we go. Going on plan B for recording this sermon this morning and hoping it works out. Um, we're going to, I want to show a little bit of a video clip. I could show you all of this testimony and sermon. Um, this is um, Kate Bowler, who wrote a book uh, that came out actually exactly a year ago. And um, actually, Daniel, can we do the scripture first? Uh, that's my mistake. Um, this week, as I started um, putting my thoughts as I was studying and um, preparing for this sermon this morning, uh, Tuesday night I was in Panera Bread um, in Richmond working on this sermon. And um, my intent kind of to initially was to take this sermon in sort of a different direction. Um, but as we see in this scripture, um, we're going to encounter um, some folks that are, uh, this is what's called the Sermon on the Plain, uh, hints of kind of the Sermon on the Mount um, that you, it's a little more popular. Um, and as I encountered these people in this scripture and in this text, and as I studied it, um, the fact of what we were supposed to learn from them um, was the level of desperateness and intimacy that they had in this moment. And there was no way but to kind of go down this trail. Um, and I, I say all that to say that um, when we were talking about naming s sermons for the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, the last time that Michael had the youth out, um, Kaylin suggested that we just title that sermon the one that made everybody cry. Um, and I said, well, I, that wasn't my intention to begin with. Um, so I'm going to just go ahead and set this up that we're going to, not that I'm trying to make you cry. That's what I'm saying to begin with. Um, my goal is not to push on emotional buttons this morning. Um, but the we're going we're gonna to step in to these people that are meeting Jesus on the plane in a pretty desperate place. And, um, and what we learn from them is that it's only in those desperate places that we really experience Jesus. So to start off, I want to um, jump into the scripture in Luke, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17. It says, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea, Jerusalem and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. 
This morning, like I started to say, we're going to open up our sermon time with a video clip uh, of Kate Bowler at an event last year called Why Christian. It was a, a conference um, that last year was held at Duke University, and uh, some of you don't hold that against it. That was just the place. Um, and uh, But it was a number of, of speakers um, who were sharing... Um, about their experiences of why they're still a Christian, why in this day and age, why after maybe some really hard things have happened in life, why do they still choose to be Christian? And like I said, I could show you this whole 17-minute clip of Kate, um, but um, I, I cut it down to just the first part, and then I'm going to read you some of her words, um, because she says what I would want to say in a way that I can't say it because I haven't been where she's been. But I wanted you to hear her voice, to see her. Um, Kate is a professor at Duke Divinity School and um, is the author of a couple of books. Um, The one that came out a year ago that I think I've already quoted in a sermon because I love the book, I highly recommend it. Um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives, Other Lies I've Loved. Um, And this is... um, her talking about what led to the writing of that book. gospel. That's my technology skills. Um, 
Kate was an expert in the prosperity gospel, and she goes on to say how over the years she visited lots of large mega churches. She said if there was a river running through the middle of the church or a gold globe that was spinning or a Starbucks in the lobby, she was there even on family vacations. And um, learning what it was that people kind of clung to when it came to their faith and believing that if they just wanted it enough, they just believed in God enough that everything would work out, that they would have all of the things that they wanted. She goes on to say, the treatment at Anne-Marie begins at the end of October. I am tired most of the time, but I feel driven to catalog everything and writing every bit of, and ring every bit of time for all it's worth. I start to write. In bed, in chemo chairs, in waiting rooms, I try to say something about dying in a world where everything happens for a reason. Whenever there is a clarifying moment of grief, I jot it down. And then, in a flurry, I shoot it off to the New York Times, not thinking too much about whether it's any good, but sending it because I have been infected by the urgency of death. Then an editor there sees it and puts it on the front page of the Sunday Review. Millions of people read it. Thousands share it and start writing to me. And most begin with the same words. I'm afraid. Me too, me too. I'm afraid of the loss of my parents, writes a young man. I know I will lose them someday soon and I can't bear the thought. I'm afraid for my son, says a father from Arkansas. He's been diagnosed with a brain tumor at 44, which would have been devastating enough if we had not already lost his identical twin brother to the same disease a few years ago. These letters sing with unspeakable love in the face of the great separation. Don't go, don't go, you anchor my life. It feels as though the world has been cracked open and it bleeds and bleeds. Hundreds of emails, letters, pictures, and videos fill my inbox and campus mailbox. Strangers pour out their fury at every stage of their own grief. Depression settles on the pages like a fog. A young man writes, I guess I was hoping that God would make something of this, but it's come to nothing. The void is deep and bottomless, and it is an, an unmerciful fact that some people have the right to look into my eyes and say, you're lucky. A young woman gently explains to me that cancer had stolen her fertility only months before she met the love of her life. If ever she shakes the disease, even for a little, she will try to adopt. Hold your son close. You're so fortunate to have him. There's plenty of denial and plenty of the deals people attempt to broker with God. One said, I'm an atheist, but I put it aside and I begged God to take the cancer away from my son and put it into me. Many people write to me like family. As a father, I am truly sorry. I'm a mother and I wish I could give you a hug right now. My inbox is full of strangers giving reasons, but most everyone I meet is dying to make me certain. They want me to know without a doubt that there is a hidden logic to this seeming chaos. Even when I was still in the hospital, a neighbor came to the door and told my husband, everything happens for a reason. I'd love to hear it, 
he replied. Pardon? She said, startled. The reason my wife is dying. He said in that sweet and sour way he has, effectively ending the conversation as the neighbors stammered something and handed him a casserole. The letters that really speak to me don't talk about why we die. They talk about who was there. A man writes to me about being taken hostage with his family and watching helplessly as the intruders pressed guns against his children's noses while his wife and daughter were threatened. But God was there, and he can't explain it. He can't explain who loosened the ropes and let his let him escape with his family unharmed, and he will never understand why he survived when his neighbor didn't. He doesn't rationalize why some people are rescued and others are hanged and doubts there is a way that God redeems situations. But he knows that God was there because he felt peace, indescribable peace, and it changed him forever. He ends the letter with a shrug. I have no idea how this works, but I wish this for you as you move forward. His description matches something I read in the newspaper the other day that summarized the findings of the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And yes, there is such a thing. Thousands of people were interviewed about their brushes with death in every kind of situation. Being in a car accident, giving birth, attempting suicide, etc., And many described the same odd thing, love. I'm sure I would have ignored the article if it had not reminded me of something that happened to me, something that I had felt uncomfortable telling anyone. It seemed too odd and too simplistic to say that what I knew to be true, that when I was sure I was going to die, I didn't feel angry. I felt loved. In those first few days after my diagnosis when I was in the hospital, couldn't see my son, I couldn't get out of bed, and I couldn't say for certain that I would survive the year. But I felt as though I'd uncovered something like a secret about faith. Even in lucid moments, I found my feelings so difficult to explain. I kept saying the same thing, I don't want to go back, I don't want to go back. At a time when I should have felt abandoned by God, I was not reduced to ashes. I felt like I was floating, floating on the love and prayers of all those who hummed around me like worker bees, bringing notes and flowers and warm socks and quilts embroidered with words of encouragement. They came in like priests and mirrored back to me the face of Jesus. When they sat beside me, my hands in their hands, my own suffering began to feel like it had revealed to me the suffering of others, a world of those who, like me, are stumbling in the debris of dreams they thought they were entitled to and plans they didn't realize they had made. That feeling stayed with me for months. In fact, I had grown so accustomed to that floating feeling that I started to panic at the prospect of losing it. So I began to ask friends, theologians, historians, pastors I knew, and nuns I liked, what am I going to do when it's gone? And they knew exactly what I meant, because they had either felt it themselves or read about it in great works of Christian theology. Augustine called it the sweetness. Thomas Aquinas called it something mystical like the prophetic light. But all said, yes, it will go. 
There will be no lasting proof that God exists. There will be no formula for how to get it back. But they offered me this small bit of certainty, and I clung to it. When the feelings recede like the tides, they said, they will leave an imprint. I would somehow be marked by the presence of an unbidden God. I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. What would it mean for Christians to give up a little piece of the American dream that says, you are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not here yet. What if rich didn't have to mean wealthy and whole didn't have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. The criticism about Jesus' preaching and healing is picking up more criticism since we were last with him last week. If you look back through the fifth chapter of Luke that we haven't read, you can see that there are people who are concerned with his teaching. They are concerned he isn't healing in the right kind of way, in the right place, or at the right time. The leadership of the synagogue is really beginning to complain and have problems with him. Remember, I said way back when Jesus was baptized that Luke really likes to highlight the power of prayer in his life, of the right timing, and that nothing Jesus does is without God. And so Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray about choosing the rest of his disciples or his apostles. They've come down the mountain right before this scripture begins, and this whole crowd full of really needy people has met him on the plain. Every time this week uh, that I've seen that, the Sermon on the Plain title, I think of Eliza Doolittle and My Fair Lady. But that's what this scripture passage is referring to, is the Sermon on the Plain. And it's comparing it to the, and connecting it to the Sermon on the Mount that we're traditionally more familiar with. It's important here that Jesus has come down from the mountain. That's the point Luke is making. Matthew wants you to know that the words came from God, and so it was a sermon on the mount. Luke wants you to see Jesus in the middle of the people who need him. All those who have nowhere else to go. The sick, those possessed by demons. They don't care about the things that the people in the synagogue are worried about because their life is so raw. They are so aware that they need him. They need something, and the power that is coming from Jesus is drawing them in. They're desperate for something, for meaning in life, for healing, for wholeness. But aren't we all? Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. And so Jesus, as this crowd of needy people is rushing on him, turns to the disciples and says, These people are blessed. Their hunger, their desire, their desperation, their fear, because it leads them to that sweetness that Kate was talking about, to that prophetic light, to that place where they know they are loved, to to that place where they know they have to depend on God for everything because they know that nothing they can muster up will be enough to fix it, to fill it. 
I think this passage of scripture first needs to remind us of the needs of the people and how they are still with us. They are surrounding us with their need. This world is an unfair place, and we're supposed to have our eyes on them because Jesus' heart is for them. God is calling us to them. They hold a special place in God's heart. That's the difference in this account versus the one in Matthew. We see them as real people with real needs. Here, though, we're, we're called not just to care for these people, but we're called to take a look and to learn from them. Because there's something raw and needy that makes them blessed. Something we can learn from, something we're missing. I don't think it's an either-or situation here. Um, We see later that Jesus is full. We see Jesus laughing, being with friends. He surrounds himself with community. We see rich people that are coming to him, following him. So this is not just an indictment on people that are full, that have money, that have resources, that laugh. Rather, it's Jesus saying that there is something we cannot learn Something we can't experience until we're honest and until we're desperate. Until we're aware of what we're trying to hide. Until we're aware of our vulnerable places. Until we're willing to go to the dark side of us that we hope no one can see. Until we go to the place where we know we cannot do this on our own. Where we have to stop pretending that we can. I want to take a little liberty this morning to say what I believe Jesus might would say to us if he were standing here with us. We'll call this the sermon on the basketball court, if you will. (laughs) Blessed are you who know your limits, who know that no amount of striving, scrappiness, spunkiness, intelligence will get you everything in life. Blessed are you who deep down wonder if you will ever be enough. Who wonder how God could love, how others could love, if they really knew you. If they could see behind the mask. Blessed are you who feel like you will never measure up to someone else's expectations. Who just want to be loved for who you are. Blessed are you who come to terms with the chaos in life. And know that no amount of controlling other things, other people, will ever make it go away. Make the need to fix it go away. Blessed are you who are honest that you're muddling through marriage or other relationships that feel like they are taking more energy than you have to give sometimes. Blessed are you who are parenting and wondering if you are doing it right. Blessed are those who struggle with their own demons so not to project what they were taught, what they believed, onto their kids. Blessed are those who are working to find the balance of patience, support, encouragement, and discipline. Blessed are you who live with the fear that you're going to get it all wrong. Blessed are you who feel like you're too much, too loud, too big, too clumsy, too opinionated, too tall, and just want to shrink back and make yourself small enough to fit into this world, to being acceptable. Blessed are you who are lonely, who wonder if you will ever be loved, be fully accepted by someone else, and find yourself pondering the lie of wondering what's wrong with you. 
Blessed are you who feel the the crushing weight of possible missed opportunities, the chance to become a parent, to become a spouse, to reach some level of achievement at work, to get that promotion, earn that salary that just seems out of reach. And you find yourself wondering why the days just seem so short and the years seem so quick while the pain still makes them so long. Blessed are you who worry about the future, worry about what you will become, what the future holds, whether you will measure up, whether life will be overwhelming, too much, whether you will fail beyond what can be recovered from. Blessed are you who are sick, who live with a pain that you do not understand and cannot fix. Blessed are you who live in the fear and anguish of losing those you love, who still mourn for those you've lost, for those who the tears just come too quickly and you can't stop them. Blessed are all of you who are willing to go to the raw spots inside, to the places where our best intentions end, because that is where we meet God. It's there that we find ourselves this morning, like those people on the plane, knowing that we cannot do this without Jesus. We then find ourselves clamoring him, wanting to touch him. It is this knowledge, this this epiphany moment this Sunday, that we will never be enough, all of this will never be enough, that Jesus is like breath and sustenance to us. That's what all our discipleship is about. That's what the Christian faith is about. We are faithful with what we have. We look for ways to serve and to give and to use our talents and to laugh, embrace joy, work hard, love others without limits. But at the end of it all, we need Jesus. I would challenge that this is the greatest epiphany of all. This greatest epiphany is the inbreaking of God into our darkest places, into our deepest fears and our concerns. It is knowing that in those places, in those moments, that we will find love in the places that should break us, in the places we work really hard to avoid ourselves and to hide from others. It's only when we're honest of their presence that the light shines in that the love can meet us there. As Kate said, when the feelings recede like the tides, they said, they will leave an imprint. And somehow, we will all be marked by the presence of an unbidden God. What if rich didn't have to mean wealthy and whole did not have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. This morning in our time of reflection, we have some hearts up here on the altar. And I'm going to ask in a minute for you to come up and grab a heart and to grab a pen. And if you're willing to begin writing down what are those dark places for you. If you're willing to be honest, what are those places that you really fear, that you work so hard to hide, where the pain really is? 
And they're, they're on hearts to remind you that it's in those places, as you muddle through, as you're honest, as you're open, that God's inbreaking happens right there. That that, in that desperate, awful place, is where you experience God's love. So this morning, just take a few minutes to reflect on that for yourself. Again, you can come up and grab a heart and a pen. This is just for you. You're not going to be sharing it with anybody else. This can be the start of the process that maybe you continue in your devotional life throughout the week. I would say that, know that I did not expect myself to be crying in the middle of a Panera on a Tuesday night. But as I studied the desperateness of this people, I couldn't help but seeing us all there on the plane clamoring for Jesus. So much so that I got in my car and I I couldn't breathe for all of us. I just started praying. I started praying for you all. God burdened my heart for for where we're as, as a church, for you as members, as participants at Mosaic. I just began to pray and lay you all before God. And so I pray that you feel those prayers this morning as we all go to this place, as we have a time of reflection, that you know that you're loved here and that you're loved by God here. Let's pray as we begin our time of reflection. God, so much we, so many times we focus on how we can strive or how we can hide or on the parts of ourselves that we want other people to see. This morning, I pray that we would be able to let you in to the places that we hide, that we would know that you are there saying, blessed are these people. Blessed are those that are willing to go to the hard and dark places of life who are willing to be honest. They will experience me in a way they never have before. God, we pray that we would feel your presence this morning, especially those who who feel the weight of really hard times already coming into this morning, that they would feel your peace and your presence, that they would feel surrounded by the love of their community here. God, this morning, as we are honest about the things that we often try to hide, pray that you would give us the courage to be vulnerable in front of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Come and grab a heart and a pen as you will.